In Moonlight, black boys look blue. You blue. That's why I gonna call you. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Why do you hate me? What have I done to you that you should ever hate me so? You tried to take her place. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I'll never let go. I promise. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance this life or the next. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Play exact. Play as time goes by. Mama always said dying was a part of life. I sure wish it was. Welcome back, Oscar fans. This is Jake. Thanks for tuning back into the OCC. The OCC stands for Oscar Category Completist, which means every year I watch every single movie nominated in every single category of the Oscars. It's a time-consuming project, but it's really just the precipice of the holy grail of Oscar completism. More than 90 years worth of Oscar movies across all categories. It's a big, big task. There's 500 to 600 to 800 movies in some categories. It's ambitious. It would probably take a lifetime to complete. But my guest today is well on our way, having just finished every single Best Picture winner of all time. We're going to talk about all-time completism with Linda Napakoski. Welcome back to the OCC. Thank you. It's great to be back. So what, I guess, inspired <laughs> you to start along the path of watching every Best Picture winner? I love seeing the nominated films and that probably led at some point naturally to just saying, I got to see all the winners. I mean, I definitely remember it was probably about 15 years ago. So just to give you an idea, I didn't decide to do it and then go out and watch them one per week for a year or two or anything like that. It was over time, you know, for me. But I definitely am a person who likes projects and I love making lists. And sometimes I like making lists of things to do as much as or more than actually doing the things. I mean, I just love to make lists and decide what's my next project and my next quest and all that. So it just fit in nicely with, um, with that. And what I can tell you is that I remember when I very first started or had the idea, okay, I'm going to watch every Best Picture winner. And I looked up the early ones that I went to the local video store in the neighborhood and rented a VHS tape for to watch one of the early ones. If that gives any idea of how long ago it was, there were still video stores and we were still going to rent them. But then I remember very quickly switching into Netflix discs in my Netflix queue and then by the end streaming. So it was sort of the arc of how we rent movies is the parallel timeline of when I was watching all the Best Picture winners, by the way. Well, the Oscars stretch back to 1927, 1928. The first ever Best Picture winner was Wings. The most yep. recent was Parasite. 
There have been 92 winners of Best Picture. Broadly speaking, the Oscars are so relevant, partially because they historicize film in a very rough and imperfect way. And if you were to look across the categories, every category and every nominee, you do see many of the classics, many of sort of the film school works. But it's not consistent that those are the movies that win Best Picture. What were your overall takeaways, I guess, of sort of the relevance of the 92 movies that you watched in in this exercise? Hmm. I definitely agree that there is not a consistent thing you could say about what won Best Picture. But what I would say is that there seems to me to always be a sort of overarching crowd-pleasing element. And it's funny because a lot of times we have this backlash against the Oscars, sort of popular wisdom that says the Academy is out of touch. Why don't big box office successes, why don't popular movies get in there? We were going to have a popular movies category. I mean, that sort of thing that you hear year after year And yet, I would say that having watched all the Best Picture winners, I did not find them to be out of touch. This is not to say I think they were all great, because I don't. But there was something crowd-pleasing about all of them. I really am hard-pressed to think of one that didn't have that element to it in some way. And so I think it's a myth. It's an urban legend that these the Academy picks out-of-touch movies because I no longer think that's true. Do you feel like in watching the 92 films that have won Best Picture that you have sort of experienced the gist of film history? Do you feel like it has encapsulated kind of the Hollywood experience over the last century in an accurate way? Actually, yes, I actually do, especially in a sort of decade-by-decade way, starting with the very end of the 1920s. You just had a couple. One was silent, you know, and then moving through the decades, I think the decades of Best Picture winners kind of have personalities. I think one decade in particular was terrible overall if you would like me to say now which one that is i can but i mean just the the 1950s i just i think it has so many movies that are just excruciating for me to watch and yet they represent the 50s in a way and it may be that i hate a lot of the nostalgia for the 50s anyway when you watch grease or happy days or just Whatever um, people have that kind of romanticization of the 1950s, I kind of always hate that. So maybe that's why I also hate the crowd-pleasing best picture winners of the 50s. I'm not sure. But just kind of staying on point with your question. I mean, going from the 20s, you see the personality of the 40s films where they got sort of serious storytelling, changing into the artistic techniques in different ways. Here come the big musicals era all the Technicolor, here comes the 70s and the turn into something different and grittier. And by the way, I don't mean strictly by 
1950, 1960, 19—I mean, sometimes the decades overlap into the previous or next decade. But right. then, and then, kind of move, seeing epic films come into play, and then, yeah, I mean, you really can kind of say you have watched a very broad, overarching arc, but of film history. Yes. Just, yes, it's a great way to look at the sort of story of film history. I kind of want to jump into some of the movies and some of the decades that you're talking about and then maybe zoom back out after that. But I feel like it's always easiest to talk favorites. (laughs) And so why don't we just jump right into your favorites? Sure. Um, So I have to say it's hard for me to pick one. It's even hard for me to pick two, but consistently when I try to pick, the few that spin around and stay at the top always are the best years of our lives, which I know is less familiar to some people, so I'll just say is from the mid-1940s. 1946. Yeah, and has a, and has a World War II theme. Um, It has more going on. It's not a war movie, but as far as just locating it in history. So the best years of our lives, Casablanca and Brand Hotel. Those three are consistently at the top of my list. So the best years of our lives, again, comes out in 1946. Best picture over (laughs) It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, true. (laughs) How do you what how do you feel about the best years of our lives relative to It's a Wonderful Life? Okay. So the movies are totally different for one thing. I mean, they could they really just take a completely different approach to everything, to character development, to life, I don't know, everything. Um, but that is yeah, that's interesting because I think again, this is a little bit of what I think leads to the reputation of the big popular crowd pleaser doesn't win kind of that idea. It's true that It's a Wonderful Life has obviously stood the test of time. Everyone watches it every year, Christmas or whatever. I mean, I grew up watching It's a Wonderful Life a hundred times, but The Best Years of Our Lives is a better movie. It is a better movie in every way that I can think of. Now, I will say that I guess the one thing you could say is that to the extent that comedy is important to people that's probably why i would get some pushback on my statement people would say people love comedies and the best picture winners by and large aren't comedies and the best years of our lives is definitely a more serious movie than it's a wonderful life but it's kind of weird because it's a wonderful life i mean is dealing with suicide right and i mean all these serious themes but just done in a completely lighthearted way Whereas the best years of our lives, obviously also dealing with serious themes, following these people who've come back from fighting World War II and sort of what happens to them now. I mean, we are talking post-traumatic stress disorder. We're talking body parts lost in the war. We're talking people who don't know how to reconnect with their spouse. They're, they've been married to because they've been on the battlefield. They don't know how to be in the loving marriage relationship anymore. I mean, all that kind of serious soldier coming home stuff that is still relevant today, however many wars later. Oh, it's such a good movie. I'm so glad it won. It's so good. And I I cannot recommend it highly enough. Have you observed sort of what constitutes a best picture? 
as being consistent or as having evolved or changed in any way? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, that is, I never really thought about that. I think that this, the best years of our lives could contend today as a best picture or, and at least as a best picture nominee. I mean, what, because what it does is it's got this story really well written and it really well performed, really good performances. Um, and it takes these actors playing soldiers who've come back from the war. And I think that we still see that as a, topic that we still grapple with on the regular. Now, recently, it seems like this decade, we've gone back to look at previous wars. So, you know, we've had 1917, and we had Dunkirk, and we had, you know, different movies that were in the Oscars race. And when the movies are made about current warfare, they tend to be more politically divisive, right? I mean, when you have American Sniper or movies like that that are sort of set in modern conflicts, there seems to be some disagreement about whether they're an Oscar movie, whether they're a good movie, whether they're Clint Eastwood's political agenda, whether they're whatever. And that's interesting to me why you ask that, thinking about the best years of our lives, because that was very much talking about the current war, right? And that even though it had just ended, the current soldiers coming back. Wow, it was so well done that now I'm going back on my answer that I just said. As much as I think it could contend as a best picture, I, w- I think, I wonder if that political thing would come into it. I don't know, not having been alive in 1946, but by all accounts, people say that everybody supported the war effort, right? I mean, that's what you always hear. I mean, what do you think? the idea of making movies about war in particular, do you think that's gone in or out of favor in any way as far as talking about current wars versus looking at past wars? I I think that war for a very long time has been kind of an Academy staple. In, In thinking about sort of are the Oscars representative, I think that if you look at the nominees... They are to an extent because you get every year you're going to get a couple war movies. You might get kind of a range of art movies and big blockbuster movies that's sort of fallen out of of style. But if you look at just purely the winners, I think there's a huge skew towards war. And even as recently as this year, I mean, 1917 was seen as a really massive favorite going into Oscar night. It's interesting, though, kind of, you know, I guess kind of the second movie that you mentioned as as one of your favorites as Casablanca which is obviously also in a way a war movie yeah I always think of Casablanca as a movie set in a war that is completely not a war movie it it certainly is not it's not like watching glory or Braveheart yeah Um, but it's inextricably linked to I mean the movie the plot doesn't exist without wartime right as the backdrop Right. And yet it's kind of not a war movie. It's weird how it toes that line kind of. Yeah, it's a classic romance. So I think it's kind of an interesting example. I mean, it's obviously one of the most revered and celebrated movies of all time, you know, where some of the movies you mentioned are, you know, some people may have heard of them or not. You know, I think anybody who would bother to listen to this podcast has probably heard of Casablanca. Um, (laughs) Right. For me, I, I've seen just an increasingly number, a cr- increasing number of movies 
but you know way back before i really had any familiarity with film school films i saw casablanca and just loved it it, it it's as fresh and undated i guess as a movie can possibly be regardless of when it was released coming back to i guess the question about um how the plane of of best picture and, and that evaluation kind of ages over time do, do you see a movie like Casablanca as being ahead of its time or do you see kind of people now maybe not knowing and not appreciating the level of filmmaking that just surrounded it year after year does that make sense as a question ahead of its time as a filmmaking technique you mean not just no. not subject matter or both or probably least as far as subject matter possibly more as far as kind of anything that would encompass storytelling structure filmmaking technique for sure the experience of sitting down and, and consuming the movie to me feels as you know it does not feel to me like i'm watching something from the 40s if that makes sense okay yeah and actually i would just add that <clears throat> I also feel that way with the best years of our lives. Part of what you just said is how also how I felt about that, that it feels fresh. It doesn't feel, oh, I'm watching this old movie, which you do kind of get when you watch some movies. Oh, I'm watching this old fashioned movie. So I definitely agree that Casablanca feels fresh and you don't feel like you're watching this old movie. So ahead of its time, there's just something about that phrase that just makes me feel as if we're supposed to be on this ever progressing forward trajectory or like progress road. Most of the time, I think humanity thinks it's on this road of always making progress and always getting better. And that now we have fill in the blank. Now we have the internet. Now we have cell phone. Now we have airplanes. Whatever it is, the latest thing, people think now we're modern and now we've got it all figured out. And I don't know how much I think that's true. So I wonder if that makes it hard for me to just think about ahead of its time because it, it maybe is that all the bells and whistles that you see in, for example, a visual effects laden Marvel Universe movie that certain directors might call a theme park and not a film aren't any better for being later and more advanced or fancier. You know, Shakespeare, for example, is obviously still studied today. And the thing people struggle with in Shakespeare is the language and the iambic pentameter. But pretty much people always agree that Shakespeare's stories and plots are relevant and then you get updated versions and you get movies that are the taming of the shrew or romeo and julia retold in a modern way i mean so something like that maybe is it that when we think of ahead of its time are we really just talking about the human condition that always was what it always was and is and the fact that we have a, a different uh way of storing video is not important to that i don't know i don't want to say well, not important to that question but well so let me let me put it like this let's take another movie okay so 1934 <laughs> it happened one night wins best picture right very entertaining i i, I sort of like the screwball era 
very dated in my opinion. I mean, if you watch it today, it does not, it is not ahead of its time, I would say. And so like, I guess using like a very geocentric or like kind of current centric way of looking at the world and saying what holds up versus what does not hold up. Okay. Yeah. Ahead of its time. Uh, Yeah. So in that way, for example, some of my favorites, be they Casablanca or the best years of our lives definitely hold up. It happened one night. I agree. Is very, I guess dated is, is a good way to put it, but it's so entertaining, right? I mean, you can look at a classic painting or work of art and really love it as a visual art as much as or more than modern art, right? So maybe the, it's just important to think of film that way too. I mean, even if they seem old, maybe it's not a question of whether they seem dated, but whether they are entertaining or not. I will say It Happened One Night was one of the pleasant surprises for me when I watched it because, as I mentioned, I have kind of an aversion to comedies in general. I, I like my film serious, and I like to have my heart ripped out and stomped on the floor and stuff and but it was so fun. I don't know. They were so good. The performances were so good. They won all the war. I mean, it was really good, right? I'm blown away by watching films from that era. And, you know, like Charlie Chaplin, The Gold Rush is a great example of this. It Happened One Night is a great example of this, where it's almost like the filmmakers, the actors, the directors are working for the audience. And you can you can just see them going out of their way to entertain you. Like, they're so concerned with making the movie going experience worth the audience's while. I mean, it happened one night has, they break out into a massive dance number in the middle of it. It's got this really elevated dialogue and cadence. That's just, it's almost farcical, but it's, it's just designed (laughs) to entertain. And I feel like, you know, that is something where you watch it and it's clearly is of a different era, but I do appreciate that dynamic, I guess, of, of kind of that, those early thirties, forties filmmaking. Yeah, well, and I'm glad you mentioned the breaking out into musical numbers thing because, boy, is that a thing that happens for the first several decades of film, right? I do sometimes have a low tolerance for the musical numbers that are just sort of everywhere <laughs> in early film. and But that lasts for a while. I mean, it doesn't really disappear in the 30s. I think that's part of what I hated about the films of the 1950s that I hated, which were several of them, is kind of the cheesy, just treacly musical numbers. So to address your point about them kind of working for the audience, I do think there was a theatrical element to that that has gone away now. So there definitely is some point over the course of film history, whatever that is, that we turn away from performing as if we're on a stage into the idea that you can have intimate, quiet conversations and stuff like that. Um, Visual weirdness, I guess maybe Kubrick, people like that who explored visual weirdness, you could take that in a bunch of different directions. Um, But you do see these turns throughout film history. And I am glad we got away from just breaking out into song 
when I, I seriously think they were giving people filler so they could go get popcorn or be late. Or, I mean, it was, people didn't know how to go to the movies yet, maybe, you know? I mean, it was that kind of thing too, I think. Sometimes it's so irrelevant to the plot. So irrelevant. And yet there they are. So it's interesting, you bring up the 1950s in regards to musicals. Now, the (laughs) 1960s, I'll yeah. go through the, the best picture winners <laughs> in the 1960s. You have 1961 West Side Story, musical. My Fair Lady, 1964, musical. Sound of Music, 1965, a musical. A Man for All Seasons, 1966. I've not seen that. Is that a musical? No. <laughs> we get a break from the musicals <laughs> with A Man for All Seasons. In the Heat of the Night, 1967, is almost certainly not a musical. Not a musical. <laughs> Oliver, 1968, is a musical. And then Midnight Cowboy is not a musical, but it's weird as hell. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the 1950s, you have what, Gigi in 1958, I believe, is that that's a musical kind of? It's it's weird. It's an awful movie and it uses music. It's I, I don't that's a, I don't really know if it's considered a musical. I, it not, could I, be. It has musical sequences, if not musical numbers. Yeah. Uh, and then you have The Greatest Show on Earth is 1952. You have American in Paris, 1951. That's the one I roll my eyes at. I just, I can't bear the, okay. So an American in Paris and Gigi to me are in some ways they're the same movie, even though they're totally different. But, but what they have in common in my head is just this kind of, ugh. this isn't a movie. This is someone's visual fever dream of just, color and dancing and fashion and oh look at me I'm not a black and white movie with a plot I'm gonna dance around your screen and be annoying I I, I can't I know there are some people out there in the world that disagree with me about American in Paris I know people love that movie I do not because I don't feel like I'm watching a movie when I watch it I feel as if I'm watching someone's dream of dance sequences maybe infused with acid trip whereas Gigi at least people agree that that's a terrible movie I mean I'm not the only person who feels that way the difference between the 1950s and the 1960s music wise is that in the 1950s I see it as everyone's super excited to be making movies in color so to go along with the color they want to put these big splashy images in there And they think, wow, what could be big and splashy? I know, a song and dance. So they throw in that. And then it just is so, to me, not quality film or plot or story or screenwriting. Although I happen to know a lot of them won for writing and screenplay. And it just, that bothers me too on a whole other level. The Greatest Show on Earth is kind of the same, even though it's not just a musical thing. It's The Greatest Show on Earth is set in a circus. And so you've got, I mean, just imagine traveling circus and big flashing things again. And and Around the World in 80 Days, also not a musical, but they somehow managed to get in there, you know, big sequences of weirdness. It's, It's seriously, the 1950s to me is just, even though they're not musical after musical, they are doing kind of what musicals sometimes do, which is put big splashy things out there to be big, numbers whereas in the 1960s which they really were musicals at least some of those are actually better because they know what they admit what they're doing 
they're making a musical. Okay. And then did they make a good one or a bad one? You know, the sound of music is a, an excellent one. And some of the others, not so much. <laughs> We're talking about 1960s musicals, but I think you're you're dead on in terms of the 1950s and sort of expanding really an emphasis on scale. You know, Around the World in 80 Days is an interesting one because if you look back now at what people sort of wished for cinema to be, like what it just no longer is in the eyes of many cinematic purists, a movie like Around the World in 80 Days is sort of what they're talking about. It's, it's like it's the grandeur of experience and kind of the transportive three hours in this case that you spend sitting in the dark watching something fantastic. And yet this is a movie that I think is largely disliked. I happen to actually like it. Okay. What do you make of that? Like, I guess, how do you evaluate phases like that or sort of like, you know, something's place in film history versus just its sort of current entertainment value as you're, as you're evaluating it? Well, that's interesting because that is something that I actually tried to do as I was watching movies sometimes specifically is, for example, if I watched a movie on DVD and kind of thought, what was that? That was not a good movie. Why that win best pick? Why is this a beloved film? Sometimes going and watching the DVD bonus feature commentary or especially if it was a Criterion collection, I mean... Sometimes I would get these remarkable insights into its place in film history that would then make me appreciate it a whole lot more. So that is definitely a thing that happened. It definitely happened with Tom Jones. It happened even with some later ones. Some of the 80s ones I didn't love that much, but I see what they did importantly. And, and I see why people liked them, even when I didn't like them. Around the World in 80 Days has a different problem for me, which is that I loved the book and I thought the movie really ruined the book. So trying to step away from that, it isn't just, oh, they changed some things from the book, but they, that they lost what was so good about it. The, the character was so not dumb and goofy in in the book and in the movie I thought that there was this element of just as you mentioned the grandeur of let's go around the world that's so cool that we can make a movie but why do we have to add in these weird elephants or why do we have to add in just or a bullfight or there was some awful like animal rights thing that I hated I think it was a bullfight right it was a bullfight yeah bullfight, and it wasn't in the book and I just remember thinking just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. That was how I felt about that movie. So it's interesting that you say, oh, look what they were so excited to be doing everything they could do with movies in the 50s. And I was on the other side saying, you took a perfectly good story <laughs> and added everything into it that you could add into it. Don't just throw everything at it and see what sticks. That's no way to make a movie. Yeah, it's it's hard. Once you, If you love a book, it's always hard to... To watch the movie i want to go rapid fire through some okay. of the notable you know there's a lot of notable stuff that's happened in hollywood but i want to hit some of the notable ones and then talk a little bit more broadly about completism to kind of wrap up so kind of 1927 1928 wings this is the first ever best picture what were your kind of impressions watching watching wings 
everyone should watch it because of its significance. It's perfectly charming, entertaining way to spend an hour or two seeing what they did, speaking of things that had never been done before. But I just don't feel I love it. I don't know that anyone needs to love it, though. You can just appreciate it for the significance that it has. We jumped to 1939, Gone with the Wind wins Best Picture. Should we still be watching this movie? Well, if you want to talk about the history of film, we should still be watching the movie. And I think it's important for us to watch it and have that discussion about it and talk about how big it was and how little anyone was thinking about how it romanticized slavery and, and just violent oppression of humans. Nobody was thinking about that when they had their big lavish premiere and shot the big epic scenes. And I think it is important to look back at what they were capable of doing, not forget about it forever, but look at back at it and, and watch it and see what was good about it. And then talk about why they used their power, their talents for good and or for evil instead of good or whatever, you know, kind of that question of using your powers for good or evil, I guess. Is, I think it's important to look back and, and look at it and talk about it. It's one of the really interesting things about this exercise of, of going back and watching all these historical films is the way that the Oscars mark time. And you do see kind of evolutions in just the way people think about the world. And, and certainly there's a lot of focus today on gender and race. And I think that that's a very interesting element when you go back and watch these old movies. <laughs> oh, but no, it is. I, I think you're right. I mean, you were you had initially asked about the the arc of film history, but it really is kind of the arc of history history. I mean, you're, you're seeing the social history, the life history, especially if you grew up um, maybe with grandparents who were close to that age or the age where they were seeing movies when they were really young in the earlier days of film and just kind of thinking about your grandparents' lives and that trajectory or that, that kind of stuff. It's, it is interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a history. It's a social history. So we go to 1941. There's a movie coming out later this year called Mank from David Fincher that covers the making of Citizen Kane, one of the celebrated as one of the best movies of all time. But of course, Citizen Kane did not win Best Picture. It was a movie called How Green Was My Valley. Oh, how overrated is my valley. That is squarely in the middle of my what are we doing here list. It's not bad. It's just not great. And I don't know why people love it. So I'm sorry, Citizen Kane. I don't know what happened. But How Green Was My Valley is just average. History has treated it as such, despite its <laughs> despite its statue. We, we've talked quite a bit about the 50s, but we did skip on the waterfront, which is arguably the most significant work of the decade. I guess you could make a case for maybe Bridge on the River Kwai. And I would probably make that case. I was going to say that of the decade, those two, uh, on the waterfront and the Bridge on the River Kwai, are the two that I don't hate or you know, that I really like. And I think the bridge on the river Kwai is the best. I think it's phenomenal. I think it holds up to watch today. It is a film with a capital F. It is just something to behold. I love it so much. And I hope people aren't put off by it 
because they have an idea that, you know, their parents liked it or it's old or it's people marching through the jungle. It kind of is all those things, but it's so good. And so I love Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, more, but I know on the waterfront is significant and also it's really good. I suppose you could make a case for Ben-Hur, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that Let's that is not. not your favorite. <laughs> Just based what on the conversation. I read the book and I, you know what? I need to stop saying that. I know because there's people who just do not care about the source material at all. But I want to, I will add that I actually, it's funny. One of the reasons I slowed down in the project was I actually wanted to read some of the source material before watching some, the movies. And I tried to read everything that was based on a book. I tried to read the book before I watched the movies. So if I hadn't have done that, I mean, I would have finished my project a couple of years earlier because I was, you know, putting on hold at the library out of Africa and Ben-Hur and Tom Jones, which is 900 or some odd ridiculous pages and kind of a terrible book, but very important for its time, much like the movie that was, you know, based on it. So um, as much, my point is that as much as people are right that you should look at a movie independently as a cinematic work, I think there is something that you can also gain from being familiar with the source material. Because there's a reason people went to this source material. There's a reason they wanted to make a movie of Ben-Hur. I mean, you can definitely judge the movie independently, but there's a reason that they wanted to, and there had already been a Ben-Hur movie and they wanted to make another one, you know, I'm, or maybe there had already been two by that point. I'm not even sure how many, um, I know there was a weird old silent one. So I, I won't completely divorce the source material for that reason. But Ben-Hur to me is, it sort of wants to be an epic, but it isn't. And it sort of wants to be a emotional and it wants to be philosophical and it wants to be, I don't know what it wants to be, but I don't know if it's anything. I don't know. Do you like Ben-Hur? Um, it's quite long. <laughs> yes. It's not my favorite. Okay. <laughs> so we covered the 60s pretty thoroughly i think the 70s if you go if you pivot from lots of musicals in the 60s and then you kind of end the 60s with an x-rated psychedelic midnight cowboy you then turn to the 70s which i assume the theme is some sort of take on gritty realism or just escalated violence we have Patton in 1970, French Connection in 71, not overly violent. 1972, The Godfather. You have The Godfather Part Two in 74, The Deer Hunter in 78. What was your take on the decade, I guess? It's it's quite a pivot from anything that's come before. Yeah, it is a pivot. The grittiness comes in and all the, the sort of 70-ness that we think of comes in. The Godfather and Godfather um, Part Two are obviously so representative of the 70s and still beloved by so many people today um but even i think the 70s is one of the is an interesting decade to look at the um nominees as well as the winners and that really helps you to see that grittiness coming in with the academy and that and filmmaking but i also would like to make the case that the 70s 
of Best Picture winners actually begin in the 60s with In the Heat of the Night. Not with Midnight Cowboy being the weird turn, but actually In the Heat of the Night because mm -hmm. it's... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you have to skip Oliver in 1968 right. to make that yes. case. I think. <laughs> you, you, you have to skip Oliver, but, you know, it's almost as if In the Heat of the Night is doesn't belong where it is in time, right? In the timeline. I mean, it's it's still relevant. The racial racism and in the importance and the the Southern sheriff. I mean, it's so important, but it's so good. I mean, you are drawn in and you're in the sweltering town and yeah. So as much as I think the seventies, the grittiness kind of starts within the heat of the night. Yeah, the, the 70s turn out solid movies. I think the 70s goes wrong when they throw Annie Hall in there. I would agree. I, Annie Hall is, is not for me. I, I really didn't understand. I didn't understand it. It just wasn't for me. And again, like... People love that movie. Why? <laughs> they do. And, and Woody Allen is extremely relevant over the history of film. So it's not... You know, it's there are probably more egregious examples of kind of when you look back in history, the wrong movie being the winner. But when you see Star Wars today and you think that in 1977, this kind of comedy about a nebbish guy going on dates beat Star Wars, it's just sort of, sort of hard to think about. Yeah, I almost wonder how much of the... The things that people hate about the Oscar campaigning and how is it, is it a popularity contest? Is it like students going around saying, vote me for student council president? All that stuff. If that was part of the Woody Allen-ness, people wanted to be cool or say they met him or, I really don't know. I, I've never understood why Annie Hall is as loved as it is. So you mentioned kind of having a mixed take on the 80s but recognizing the importance i mean this seems to be a lot of epics you have gandhi you have chariots of fire amadeus you have out of africa the last emperor what, what's your general take on this decade the 80s are really interesting for me personally because now you've got the movies where i was a small child listening to my parents talk about movies or maybe they would be on cable or my parents are watching Chariots of Fire and I couldn't possibly be interested wandering in or out of the room, you know, as they're watching it on cable. But I had an idea of it was important or it was good or it was bit, I mean, the theme song was everywhere for years after the movie into the 80s. So the 80s are so interesting to me because they start to be movies that I remember my parents seeing and talking about seeing, even if I was way too young to see them. And now that I go back and watch them, that makes them more interesting for me in a way because I remember, even though I didn't see them at the time, I remember how much people liked them at the time. So I'm able to do something different with them than I am with older movies. And I think that for the 80s, it's surprising what I think holds up. I think Chariots of Fire is great. I think Out of Africa is eh, less great. I think The Last Emperor 
it's just an epic that seems like it would be one person's kind of movie. Do you want to go watch a big sweeping historical epic in China? Blah, like that's what I think I can hear people kind of saying about it negatively. And then it's so engaging. It's actually not off-putting at all. I want all those people to know that, yes, you do want to go watch the last, actually. It's really quite good. I think a lot of the 80s, I think Gandhi is weirdly better than the idea we have of it. So in general, I would say that the 80s movies, we think we know what we're getting into. Oh yeah, that was that big thing. And then when you go back and watch them, you say, oh, actually that was really good. They were onto something. My parents were onto something, you know? <laughs> well, then getting, it, it kind of becomes our collective era as, as you head into the 90s. How, how do you summarize this decade that has a pretty broad range of, of film styles, I guess? Oh, man. How do you summarize the 90s? Well, first of all, let me just say that I think it's interesting how much people get angry that Shakespeare in Love won and, and Saving Private Ryan didn't because I am not bothered by that. I loved Shakespeare in Love and I am not bothered in general when Hollywood rewards films about acting or the love affair Hollywood has with itself. In general, that doesn't really bother me. I think it's Hollywood. Whatever. Let, let them have a love affair with themselves. They're the ones making the movies. Is it a good movie or not is more my question. And the fact that they loved this movie about Shakespeare and actors, I loved it too. But the 90s, yeah, you've got so much going on. But, it, but I think it's largely big stuff. Big, Titanic, big, The English Patient, The Silence of the Lambs, might not be big sweeping, but it's got one of the most famous characters ever in Hannibal Lecter, you know? Big. The 90s has big stuff that you don't really realize, maybe. Yeah, I mean, even Forrest Gump sort of spans the American history in a way. Right. I think Forrest Gump, I went and saw it in the theater, right? I mean, now we're talking about movies. I remember I went and saw them in the theater before knowing whether they were going to be a best picture winner or not, right? Which is interesting to do, to, to think about compared to, I mean, I've seen a lot of these actually on the big screen, Music Box Theater here in Chicago, uh, The when I lived in Boston and New York and LA, obviously, also you can go see a lot of times older movies, you know, playing in a cinema at an actual theater, not now in COVID times, but in normal times. And so it's it's really cool to go back and watch some of these on the big screen in a theater and, and have that experience. And I did actually was able to do that with a lot of Best Picture winners that I'm really glad I did. Lawrence of Arabia was one, um, The Bridge on the River Kwai, West Side Story, a few others. But remembering going to see Silence of the Lambs, Forrest Gump, Titanic, just because I went with my friends to the theater to see a movie you know, Silence of the Lambs is probably one of the first ones, in fact, that I saw in the theater just to see it, not with any idea that it was going to be one of the best movies of the year or anything like that. You know, it's interesting to think back on those. It is interesting. And then, you know, I want to I, I want to leave time to cover a couple of kind of more completist e questions. So I'll just. I'll I'll really put you on the spot for the thousands, and I'm I'm, I'm going two thousand. Okay to this year 
what is the most what is your favorite and then what would you say is the most representative best picture movie in the last 20 years okay my favorite is probably parasite the reason i'm so hesitant to say that is because it's so new and fresh i don't know if you ask me that in five years if i'll say that again but right now i would probably say parasite least favorite chicago and the most representative maybe no country for old men there's a there's a little bit of grittiness in the last 20 years with million dollar baby the departed her locker the hurt well and then i was going to say there's beyond gritty the the more the actual tragic seriousness of the hurt locker 12 years a slave and then there's some weird stuff that came around later uh like you know the shape of water or <laughs> birdman's a little weird so i guess having no country for all men in there is a little bit odd characters but just more serious and gritty i think that might be a, a representative one yeah i i think that's a pretty I think that's a good answer. I, it's probably my favorite that are that are parasite, but it's also it does sort of bend the more toward what this kind of push and pull between film Twitter and old Hollywood. And I feel like that's sort of where we are as we leave off with parasite. You kind of have a movie getting elevated that, you know, if you think about a movie like Rashomon in 1950, you know, was nominated in Best International Film. You know, it's seen largely as one of the great films of all time and didn't even get nominated for Best Picture. Here we are today, and, and you really do have a conversation that is much more global, that, that takes into account many different types of films. But then for every parasite, you then next year, you know, get Green Book. and um, <laughs> Oh, Green Book. I think those are good answers. <laughs> Poor little green book. It's yeah. But I, I think that in a way it might be slumdog millionaire that helped turn that corner because people were sort of into something that for United States people definitely had some foreign stuff going on with it that they may not have thought much about before. I think slumdog millionaire helped a little bit with that path. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see that. Well, it's quite a journey through the decades. So as I, you know, you mentioned that this, this was a, a project over time and that you rented movies from Blockbuster and then saw movies at Music Actually, Box. Actually, by the way, my neighborhood indie video store, I didn't used to go to Blockbuster. It was the indie video store and I'm sorry it died. They were really cool. <laughs> Even better. But for somebody who is going after this today how findable are these movies i guess is there one that was really difficult for you to find i think that now everything is findable the one that took me a while to find was cavalcade from the 1930s because it was just not available on dvd forever and then it, it they were busy and then they reissued it or something. So there was an actual time where I kept saying, okay, I guess Cavalcade is going to be the last one I see because when is it going to finally be reissued? Although it actually ended up that Tom Jones was the last one I saw because I had to read the book first and then give it some time. But um, I think now, especially people who have no compunction about 
illegally downloading stuff, they're going to not have any problem finding everything. <laughs> but let me just say that you can legally, <laughs> I think, find most things between Netflix and now I think the streaming services more and more. I mean, for example, I just got HBO Max and they've got a bunch of stuff that you just, I don't know what the rhyme or reason is to it, but it's just kind of on there. And so, yeah, yeah I, don't think, I don't think it's really hard to find anything. Nonetheless, it's a huge accomplishment in the completest world. I tip my cap to you. My last Thanks. question, what's your next category? Well, <laughs> so now I want to watch all of the screenplay winners, which is actually two categories. And actually in the past, for a while there, there were three there were years where it was three. They used to give a, a story and then an original story. I mean, there. It, so the writing award has gone through a few different iterations, basically. So writing slash screenplay, which is more than one category to begin with, is my next category or categories that I want to see them all. I'm, I'm well on my way because there is a lot of crossover, thank goodness, you know, <laughs> between... Um, best pictures and screenplay winners, but that you have that added thing of there's always another one, even in the years when it was best picture, you know, there's, if it was original screenplay, they're still adapted or whatever. And um, luckily I've seen all of the ones from my adult lifetime since I've been in charge of my own movie going, you know, so it's, it's really going back to about the eighties and then reverse, but I, I've watched a bunch. So I, I basically just have holes to fill lots of holes to fill. Count me very impressed, and I appreciate you coming back to share this experience and your takes on on the all-time best pictures. Thanks, Linda. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. You're welcome. And I, I just want to say I highly recommend anyone who's thinking about doing it, do it. It's a fun project. Who cares how long it takes? It's super fun. Love it. Love it. And thank you for having this podcast, and thank you for having me on, too. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks again. Really appreciate it.